Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, July 24th. We've been feeling the heat in the city of Calgary over the past several days, and we're not alone. Many cities across North America and Europe are currently under the grips of a heat wave. So is this the new normal, and how do we adapt to rising global temperatures? We discuss with Altaf Arain, Professor of Earth, Environment, and Society at McMaster University. It's an incredibly ambitious goal for a great cause. We catch up with Matthew Embry, a Calgary-based man living with multiple sclerosis, who plans to run six marathons in six days to raise money and awareness for MS research. And finally, it's a sweet debate. How much sugar is too much sugar, and would we be better off health-wise using artificial sweeteners over the natural choice? We tackle the topic with Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. We've certainly been feeling the heat here in Alberta, but heat records are being set right across the globe from Arizona to Greece. Is this summer's heat wave an outlier or a sign of things to come? Joining us to talk about it is Altaf Arain, professor of the School of Earth, Environment and Society at McMaster University and director of the McMaster Centre for Climate Change. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks so much for joining us. Yes, good, good morning. So, I mean, we've got a heat wave. Obviously, it's affecting North America incredibly, but around the world, yes. So is this the new normal, do you think? Uh, yes. Uh, this is what we will expect in going forward in the future. I would not say it's a new normal because this would be a changing new normal uh, because uh, our greenhouse gas emissions are increasing, so is the temperatures slowly increasing every year. So when we have warm temperatures, then there's a more likelihood of heat waves, flooding, and other extreme events. So scientific community is not surprised. They were predicting, they were uh, expecting this kind of weather conditions going forward. So this is what we see. Uh, one unique aspect uh, this year is this is also an El Nino year. So that's making things more uh, extreme. So it's like we are climbing a road slowly uh, towards warming and there's a bump. So this El Nino is like a bump that we will see every three to seven years, but we are steadily going towards that uh, direction, more warmer uh, climate. Okay, so, so just to clarify, Professor, you say a bump every three to seven years. So in other words, we won't see maybe things to this extreme every single year, but sporadically after a handful of years? Uh, I would say that would not be uh, like a scenario. We will see the warming because uh, in different regions, we may still have records breaking uh, in every year. And this is what we have seen over the past last decade. If we look at the 10 years, then... Uh, eight of them are the record warm years. Uh, so that kind of scenario we are going. So I, I would not say that, okay, after five, seven years, we'll see this kind of year, and now let's not worry about a uh, few years coming. But in different parts of the world, we will see these extreme uh, events, either heat waves or the flooding uh, going forward. Uh, but El Nino uh, make it more wide. When El Nino comes, then a large parts of the world are impacted, like Asia uh, and the U.S., uh, southern southwest in the U.S. So that's a large-scale global phenomena. Then more parts are impacted at the same same time. 
We hear people say, you know, this is just a, a trend and trends happen and have happened for eons. So can we distinguish between extreme weather like this current heat wave and long-term climate change over centuries in terms of what we've seen and what we will see in the future? Uh, yeah, yes. If we look at uh, the trend, uh, we have increased. If you look at past 30 year or past like a 60 year then we have a steadily increase uh, in terms of the warming. Going forward, our climate models, they predict uh, a very rapid uh, trend going forward uh, in next 40 years and in next uh, up to the end of the century. So I can give you an example. Look, we did some analysis in Hamilton area looking at the global climate predictions. We see like a five, four, five episodes, like a four or five days, you can say, the extremely warm temperatures going forward by 2040, uh, we will see like a 20 of those days. Hmm. So, so the hard days, we see 40 day hard days when temperature is above 25. Going forward, we'll see like up to 90 days. So, so, so we are going towards uh, this kind of warmer uh, climate. Uh, but then once we have the uh, air already warmer, then the extremes become more frequent, they become more intense, and we may see more longer, multiple uh, days of the warm temperatures. Uh, so, so those kind of things become more normal, more common. And it makes sense, because when you have a warmer air, then the air will hold a lot of water. This is an exponential increase in water in the air. So this water has to come uh, down when the air will cool. So we see pouring rains. So we have seen like 300 millimeters falling within few hours in many parts of the world uh, this year. So this is becoming more common now. So this kind of trend we'll see because uh, our air will be warmer, our climate will be uh, warmer going forward. A question for you, and by the way, we're speaking with Professor of School of Earth Environmental, Environment and Society, McMaster University, and Director of the McMaster Center for Climate Change, Altaf Arain. And, uh, Professor, I am a meteorologist by trade, and I finished my education about 16 years ago. Something that very much stood out to me, Professor, was there were conversations back then surrounding climate change and, and what we should be looking forward to uh, weather-wise when we move ahead in years. And one of my professors who uh, dealt with uh, severe weather had said uh, one of the issues with climate change is they say that, you know, um, you know we've got these hurricanes and, and, and they're going to get worse. He had mentioned that as temperatures rise in areas that are not typically as hot as they should be, we would see the diminishing of so much volatility. Because as we know, intense high pressure versus intense low pressure is what really fires up the intense weather. But now that we've got more uniformity between the equator and North America, for example, those temperatures have evened out. Yet we're still seeing the volatility when it comes to things like hurricanes. Can we explain that? Yeah. I think the recent analysis uh, tells us that we have the jet streams running uh, through a belt where uh, most of the Canada uh, is located. They converge over the Great Lakes. Uh, it's like you hold a rope and then you shake this rope so you have ups and highs. Uh, uh, so uh, if there is a big contrast between the temperature in the north and the equator, then the jet streams are relatively more steady. Uh, but once 
this difference is diminishing, then the jet streams, uh, like, uh, they go up and down more. It's like a rope. You're making a bigger shake. So, so this is what we see when there's a winter, then the polar air is stuck in many parts, in Calgary, in Alberta, for a long time, many, many days. So you see minus 25, 30 for many days. And then the same becomes with the hot uh, areas, when there's an updraft of the air coming from the south. So we have a many, many days, this air temperature is, uh, is stuck there. So this, this is what we see. Uh, I would say if uh, the north is warming and then we are diminishing this kind of uh, gradient in the temperature, we are seeing more uh, longer of these uh, events happening. So this is, this is what the current analysis from many research groups that's coming. Uh, and for the hurricanes, uh, this is a debatable. Uh, uh, it's still debatable uh, that there is, whether there's a killer trend. But when the ocean will be warm, then the hurricanes will have more energy. And so this is uh, what we see. But this year, uh, the biggest surprise is that we see the ocean warming uh, in areas there we don't expect. The Atlantic is showing the hottest uh, temperatures this year. So, so there's, and the sea ice is lowest. Every year we have that. This year is a record breaking. So the things are changing very uh, rapidly, uh, whether it's the ocean, ice, are on the terrestrial ecosystem. Ongoing discussion. Thank you so much for your perspective this morning, Professor. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Altafa Rain, Professor of School of Earth, Environment, and Society at McMaster University. Over 25 years ago, Matthew Embry was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. That diagnosis changed his outlook, changed his thinking, and changed his life. Now, Matt is embarking on a very ambitious project to raise both awareness and money in the fight against MS. Details on the project coming up in a second, but first we are joined by Matt Embry. Good morning to you, Matt. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time and uh, getting up early with us here. Uh, tell us, before we get to your project, because it is very ambitious, uh, your personal experience. I know we've had you on the program before, but can you refresh uh, your experience and your journey with MS? Sure. I mean, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 1995. I was 19 at the time. Um, and then my father, who is a, a PhD researcher, went to the medical library and came up with uh, science-based uh, nutritional uh, strategies uh, with that with exercise and higher dose vitamin D. And I've been on those nutritional strategies using exercise and high dose vitamin D and have been drug-free with no MS drugs. And now, 27 years later, I'm symptom-free and, and run a website called mshope.com to share these strategies with other people around the world. Wow, that is absolutely amazing. And and you feel good and you look good, obviously. And, and you've got this, uh, to call it a project seems really to be diminishing what you're going to be doing. So tell us about what you've got planned. Well, we've got a really um, you know like a- ambitious uh, project ahead of us. Uh, a friend of mine named Rich Stein, who's in Texas, he also has multiple sclerosis and used nutritional and exercise strategies uh, to maintain his health. Him and I will be joining MS Run the U.S. Um, down in the U.S. to be running six marathons in six days 
to be raising funds. And our journey is going to be raising funds specifically for another, um, he's Canadian, uh, MS patient who's suffering severe disability. And, and our goal is to achieve this run, uh, I guess, again, 100, it's 169 miles, um, and to raise the money to hopefully get him a procedure in the U.S. or treatment so he can walk again. Okay, so let's uh, let's get down to, you know, the logistics behind this. Six mm. in six. This is something yeah. uh, that you, you folks decided, as you say, underscoring the word ambitious, which might not be a big enough word to describe this, Matt. Uh, but what is your running experience? And, uh, you know, some people might say, you have MS. Your friend has MS that are doing this. Would that be a hindrance uh, during a run like this? Well, I think that's what we're trying to prove. We're trying to, to show the world um, that people with multiple sclerosis can achieve um, these type of athletic feats and goals. Uh, we're trying to, to to prove that, you know, the strategies that we're using, um, number one, are effective in managing MS, and number two, uh, we can compete at an athletic level like anybody else. Um, it, again, it's it's about for me, it's about redefining what MS is, what a MS diagnosis is, and you know, my running experience is something that I just I took up myself, and same with Rich, we just did it as a hobby, um, and we both met at a, a race, it was called a Ragnar race, it's an adventure race uh, in the U.S. where we were the first MS team ever uh, to complete um, a Ragnar. And so we met a year ago. So when this opportunity came up to, to partner with MS Run the U.S., we got on board together. Matt, you know, if you think back to when you were first diagnosed, do you think the fact that you got on it so quickly with this this treatment that your dad came up with and this what you've been using and keeping yourself healthy with all these years, it, it, are there different types of MS or do you think you just got to it really quickly? Because I look at you and, and you're the picture of health, obviously, absolutely super fit. You really look after yourself. I've got another friend with MS who's, who's wheelchair ridden. So what do you think mm-hmm. the difference is? Well, I mean, that, that's really hard to answer without knowing the specific yeah, case. Yeah, I get it. Um, and, and there are different types of MS. However, the strategies, the, the nutritional strategies and the protocol that we have on mshope.com, we've seen incredibly positive results for people with relapsing remitting MS, people with progressive MS. So, I mean, I can't exactly say what type it's going to affect, but we know we've had positive results with people with other, other forms. Um, and for me, I totally agree with you. Getting on it early was key. Uh, for my body to start healing right away and to use the strategies to keep it in control. Yeah, and I like how you're underscoring that there are different types mm-hmm. or, or different experiences because there is not one, you know, best fit for everybody, but the best bad diet, that's something that you've been attached to. Tell us about this, uh, what what it entails and, and why it's important for you to, to spread the word about the best bad diet. Sure. So the, the best bed diet is, is the diet that my dad came up with. And it more or less, it's gluten-free, dairy-free, low sugar, low fat, um, no beans, and then high-dose vitamin D. And it's again, it's, it's science-based. It came from the science on mshope.com. I recently put up a PDF with the top 13 scientific articles that support our protocol. Um, and that's what we try to share. And we try to make, we make it freely available. And we also provide a free cookbook for people if they if they choose to do it. And again, we never tell people not to take a drug. We never tell people they have to make their own choices uh, and how they want to treat their own illness. 
How do you deal every day in life, Matt, in terms of, you know, keeping yourself motivated and keeping yourself going? You still have that diagnosis in the back of your head, despite the fact you're really fit right now. Do do you worry about that or do you just always wake up and say, I'm going to move forward. This is going to be a good day. You know, I think it's both of those. You know, I really try to maintain that positive attitude as best as I can. I know that's hard for everybody. And I think it, does, it having that diagnosis does motivate me. Um, I, I've, you know, in a, being in the MS community, you see how, how tough this disease can be. Um, and it, it keeps me pushing, not only to keep myself healthy, but to, to share my journey in the hopes that other people see it and, and think, okay, I can do that too. Um, because there's people out there who function like that for me. Like I watch people who I really am impressed by or who, who've done great overcome things. So I hope that I can, I can be that person for somebody. But Matt, I mean, listen, it, it seems to me, and I've, I've known you for maybe 20 years, we've crossed paths and, uh, you know, I, I've followed your journey and your progress. You could be using your, you're obviously a very smart guy. All right. And you're very determined. You could be using your resources and energy to excel big time in business or, or, or tackle another pursuit. But literally, you've poured yourself in to all things MS and helping people live their best lives while living with MS. Why do you find that uh, the, the best way to spend your time? How, are you, how, how do you keep this up? Well, I think that's a, that's a great question. And for me, it's about purpose. And I think as I got older in life, you know, as I got into my 40s, I started to realize that you know, this was my purpose. Um, it, it just, the, the work that we were doing and how we were putting it out there and watching it track globally and then seeing the outcomes. I mean, you know, there's specific moments I, you know, I, I would get letters from people and, you know, that would make, bring me to tears in my driveway, literally, um, how their lives have been transformed. And when I see that and I've experienced those types of things, I just couldn't turn my back on it. Um, and I, it, it really gave me a sense that I had to keep pushing um, and, and get the information out there. And, and in the end, you know, hopefully that's what I'll be remembered for. <laughs> if you could sort of verbalize one tip for our listeners moving forward that, that keeps you going, that will help motivate them today and beyond, what would you do? How would you say that? Well, my, my, one, tip, my one key message is we only have so much time. And I think people really need to think about that. I mean, you've only got so much time here on the earth. And so if you, if you have that in the back of your mind that, you know, this, this life is short. Um, and so what are you going to do? And making the best of it starts right now. Even listening to this radio show, it starts right now to make that the best life and the, the limited time you have here, the best it can be for you and the people around you. I'm reading that it kicks off on the 30th. It happens to be this Saturday coming up, going right through till the 4th. Where can people follow your progress? And uh, can they donate and, and help you and, and your buddy in the cause? Yeah, that'd be great. We've got, uh, you're able to donate through a GoFundMe page. It's at mshope.com. So mshope.com, you can, you can donate there. And you can follow me on Instagram um, to see how we're going to be doing the cause. That's Matthew.Embry is my handle with one T in my name, Matthew.Embry. Fantastic. Uh, best of luck to you. And I understand you're going to be documenting it as well. Uh, Matt, by the way, has yeah. a, a documentary called Living Proof 2, I believe on Amazon Prime. You can check out as well. It, it's, uh, I think, won awards. Quite a bit of a claim. Amazing. Um, thanks so much, Matt. We appreciate your time. Best of luck to you. Keep doing what you're doing. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. That is Matthew Embry living with MS. And, uh, of course, on the Instagram, Matthew with one T, and Embry is E-M-B-R-Y.
The sweet tooth aside, yes, I have one. How concerned should we be about the amount of sugar that we consume on a daily basis? And on the scale of foods we should be monitoring in our diets, how does sugar really stack up when it comes to comparisons with sodium or fat content? To talk about this very sweet topic, we're joined this morning by Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning, Dr. J. Good morning. Okay, is sugar really bad for us or is it that too much sugar is bad for us? Yeah, yes and yes. <laughs> so there is a limit to it. Um, if you look at lists of what uh, a lot of sugar does, it is terrifying and includes everything from diabetes to heart disease to liver problems uh, to cancer to uh, acne and wrinkles. And uh, so really it's uh, on paper sounds absolutely horrible, but there is there is a relative balance here. So if you are keeping your sugar content to less than 10% of your calories, you're probably doing pretty well and, and not going to pay a price for that. If it's above 10%, or you're adding a lot of free sugar, then this is something you need to hear about because it's not a good thing for you. But maybe, Dr. J, we want to be on this straight and narrow so we're not putting, you know, four tablespoons of sugar in our coffee and we're avoiding the sweets, the sugar-laden sweets. But what about those hidden sugars? Do some foods perhaps more have more sugar than we're aware of or ingredients and packages that we're not looking at? Yeah, yes, there is a bit of that. So I, I sort of break it down to two things. One is exactly like you said, with with adding sugar to things. I like my coffee to be sweet, so I add sugar to coffee. That's free sugar. That's a complete waste of calories. You don't need it. You don't have to use it, but you know what you're doing. So anytime you add sugar to things or sweeten things up because you like it sweeter, that's sort of on you. The hidden ones are usually in processed food. The more processed the food, the more likely they are to have thrown a little bit of extra salt in there, extra sugar in there. Why? Because it tastes better. So those are things we do have to be careful with, but it's all looking at carbohydrates, grams of carbohydrates, and you're looking at what are the ingredients. If you're seeing what looks to be sugar, glucose, sucrose, it's sugar, pure, pure and simple to mm-hmm. sweeten the pot. And those are things uh, you do have to be aware of, and that's added calorie that's hidden away a little bit, and that's still, it's equivalent to free sugar. Low fat equals higher sugar usually too, doesn't it? Uh, low, sorry? Low, L- low fat products, products that are lower fat, they've uh, usually added extra sugar in there to, to uh, take yes, care of that. correct, yes. Like <laughs> if you take something away, you probably have to add exactly, something else yeah. back in to, to counterbalance that. So similar, like low-fat products, be careful. What you know, high fat or low sugar. Like, what are, what are we adding in to, mm-hmm. to make up the difference? But yes, you do have to be careful because yeah, if you take something away and it doesn't taste good, you have to put something back to make mm-hmm. it taste better. If you expect to sell the product, I had a question for you, and this was kind of shocking. I forget who uh, put me in the right direction, but I love orange juice. I'm a huge fan. Mm-hmm of the yeah. non-pulp orange juice, and I feel like I'm doing something good for myself. And then somebody stopped me in my tracks and said, you'd be much better off eating an orange because of the yeah. sugar. And I'm thinking, is it not the same thing? How do things like that different uh, differentiate between the, the actual fruit and the juice? Because I like the juice. I think I'm doing something good. Uh, how does that work? Yeah. Well, so one is just direct direct sugar in, in a liquid form. It's, it's absorbed very quickly. It doesn't have to be sort of digested per se, whereas eating an orange, it has fiber. It has um, it has to be broken down. It has to be digested. So it's just the, how fast that sugar comes into your system. And in theory, juice is a very concentrated thing. 
so I could eat the equivalent of five oranges and a big glass of orange juice, whereas I'm not going to eat five oranges. I'm going to eat one orange, so I'm going to have less. I personally like juices, but I dilute them out a significant amount. So I'll put a little bit of grapefruit juice or orange juice or cranberry juice, whatever, and then put mostly water. Uh, so I get a little bit of the taste of it without getting all the calorie or the sugar of it. And I, I like that. And I think that's a sort of a nice way to mitigate that a little bit. Dr. J. Andy text in um, to ask this question. Does your body distinguish between natural sugars, as in fruit, and processed sugar? Does your body actually know? Well, so the processed sugar is typically like sucrose is a combination of fructose and glucose without getting too scientific, whereas most fruit are just fructose alone. It's a simple sugar, right? So the body has to break down that sucrose. So it is a little bit different. But no, when the end of the day, when it's all broken down, the body sees the exact same thing. The difference between, uh, say, uh, just straight table sugar versus, say, a fruit is that the fruit has vitamins, it has fiber, it has a lot of other things added in. So you get an actual nutritional benefit. It's not just sugar, whereas if you're taking sugar, that's all you're getting. There's no nutritional benefit apart from just sugar alone. All right. So we want to change things up a bit. We want to have a, a substitute for sugar. Is one substitute better than the others? We got a, a text from Chris who's asking about stevia. Is that healthier than the others and better than sugar for us? Yeah. So this has become very controversial because WHO has just put a posting out about uh, aspartame. Again, so these things come and go in regards to what is the actual risk of uh, sugar substitutes. Not everyone breaks them down well, so um, they can be problematic from a stomach point of view. Like if you eat too much sugar substitute, I get a stomach ache, I'm gassy, I'm bloated. That's because your body can't break them down. That's sort of one aspect of it. The other is like, are these potential carcinogenic if you eat too much? So I think even there, you have to be very, very careful. So sugar substitutes are great for not getting sugar, but if I'm drinking four liters of, of pop, uh, you know, diet pop, I'm getting a lot of sugar substitute if I'm putting that in my coffee or like, so you have to be careful with that. And that's right across the board. There may be better and worse, but I think we should be careful of all sugar substitutes. Roger asked the final question that we'll put to you. Uh, he's curious about honey. How does it compare to processed sugars? Yeah, so similar in many ways, but again, it has a bit more nutritional value, right? So you're getting other benefits from honey that you don't get with sugar. So similar to that eating of the fruit, but be careful. I mean, honey is sweetened. It is a very heavy uh, carbohydrate. It's, it's heavy sugared, but maybe you get a medicinal benefit from the honey, you know, for immune system, for some vitamins, for some, you know, other things that are, are better than just pure sugar. Okay, I'm going to get the last uh, question. In. Okay, so I, do I it. We got about 15 seconds. The question is, do I just cut back or should I go on a sugar detox, Dr. J? Oh, well, it depends on how hardcore you want to be. It's very tough to take it right out of your diet mm-hmm. entirely. So cutting back is a beautiful first step. Some people take things to extreme always. So I'm not going to have any at all. And then I, you know, <laughs> two weeks later, I'm binging on sugar because I, mm-hmm. so why not just reduce it? Just be careful with it and then not take that extreme position. That's usually where I go. The moderation right up the middle. He's not going to take your chocolate away. Thank soon. goodness. And thank you so much, Dr. J, and have a great Monday. Okay, you betcha. He's Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician.
Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.